light of infinite. Tisha B'Av is the most somber day in the Jewish calendar. It's sobering to think thousands of years ago we were on top of the world, in the Promised Land with our Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, fully connected to the Divine. And then how quickly, in just three weeks, that connection was destroyed. When you really consider a loss like that, no matter how ephemeral it may be in the bigger picture, its weight can feel unbearable. The Biro Halacha explains that Devarim is always read on the Shabbat prior to Tisha B'av, so that Moshe's Tochacha, his admonition or reproof to the Jews, will coincide with Tisha B'av period. It's important to understand the cyclical nature of time in Jewish history and how the events surrounding Tisha B'av echo throughout time. In this parasha of Devarim, Moshe recalls the sins of the Miraglim, the sins of the spies, which happened in 2448. The spies came back from 40 days in Israel with evil reports of the land, and the Jewish people cried in despair, giving up hope of entering Israel. The result was that most of the generation Moshe was talking about, who saw the miracles of Exodus from Egypt and experienced God's revelations at Sinai, died out. Only the Levim and the women survived, as they didn't take part in the sin of the golden calf. In Devarim, Moshe speaks to the new generation towards the end of their time in the Midbar, the desert. This generation heard Hashem, but never saw Him. If it wasn't for the sin of the spies, the Jews would have already been in Israel for 38 years. But as we know, not even Moshe entered the land of Israel. It was a new generation that was going to enter the land. When we hear, but don't see, our faith is tested more as time passes. Suffolk, doubt, enters into our mind and heart more easily in those situations. As we've seen throughout history, as our collective faith falls, so do we as individuals. But as Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs point out in Devarim, it teaches us paradoxically, descent allows for true uplift. The highest achievements of the spirit are one in earthly and not heavenly realms. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that the Miraglim, the spies, spoke ill of the land because they incorrectly considered it a spiritual descent to give up the manna, the bread from heaven, that they had in the desert in exchange for fulfilling the mitzvot, the commandments. The exchange would only happen when the people entered the land, so the spies conspired to keep the people in the desert where they would have to rely on Hashem for their sustenance. The spies were wrong in thinking that they must engage in only heavenly matters, missing the lesson that the Torah is a combination of the ethereal and the concrete, of heaven and earth, of the finite and the infinite. It was a grave lack of emuna, faith, and dot, understanding, not seeing that Moshe was leading them to the promised land, showing them the true way to ascend and spiritualize reality. Their mistake and lack of faith on the part of the Miraglim has had its hand in history since that day in the desert, 2448. The destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash happened at the hands of the Babylonians on Tisha B'Av in the year 3340. The Babylonians killed approximately 100,000 Jews during the invasion and exiled the remaining Jewish tribes to Babylonia and Persia. 490 years after that, on Tisha B'Av 3830, the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed at the hands of the Romans under Titus. During and after the destruction, over 2.5 million Jews died as a result of the war, famine, and disease, while over a million Jews were exiled to different parts of the Roman Empire. To this day, we are still trying to recover from this tragedy. To understand the gravity of the loss of the second Beit HaMikdash, brought to both the physical and spiritual reality of the Jews, one must realize that it marks the time that prophecy ceased and divine splendor became concealed. This is why our daily tefillot, our prayers revolve around praying for the restoration of the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem. And we mourn during the weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, knowing that until the third and final Beit HaMikdash, atrocities against our people will continue, as they have on this very same day in cyclical time. To name a few, the Bar Kokhba revolt was crushed by the Romans 3892, 
the first crusade declared by the Pope Urban in 4855, in which 10,000 Jews were killed in the first month alone, ultimately bringing death and destruction to many thousands of Jews, totally obliterating communities in Rhineland and France. The expulsion of Jews from England, accompanied by pogroms and confiscation of books and property in 5050. The Inquisition in Spain and Portugal, culminating in the expulsion of Jews. Property was confiscated, families were separated, and many died by drowning. 52-52. Britain and Russia declared war on Germany, starting the First World War, which led to over 400 pogroms in Hungary, Ukraine, Poland, and Russia. This happened in 56-74. The deportation from Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka concentration camps began in 5702, and there's so many more. Normally in mourning, the rituals of abstentation and sadness take place after the event or after a person passes away. With Tishavav, we mourn the three weeks prior and the eve and the day of Tishavav, taking time to learn the history, honoring the struggle of our people, creating intentions for change and connection. But once the day passes, once Tishavav is over, it's important to not mourn. It's important to return to hope, celebration of what is and all that we still have. This is seen in this and next week's Haftarah. The one we read prior to Tishabav includes a prophetic rebuke of the spiritual sins that cause our seemingly perpetual destruction. The Haftarah we read after Tishabav holds an air of solace and hope. Even with the Haftarah portion, for this week prior to Tishabav, Shabbat Chazon, Shabbat of Vision, we can read Isaiah's prophecy as an indictment of a rebellious group of Jews in the desert, or as Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berchichev saw it as a vision of the third temple, the redemption of our failings and the elevation of the fallen. Now that we have some background for this week's Parsha, we could jump into Moshe's words in Devarim and connect them to this larger theme of judgment and loss. Moshe asked the people, Echa, how can I alone carry your troubles and your burden and your quarrel? It's not a coincidence that the first word of the verse, Echa, how, is the same word that sets off the book of Lamentations that we read on Tishabov, where Yirmiyahu lamented, Echa, how can the city that was so full of people sit alone? And in the Torah reading for this week, the same word is used, Echa, how can I carry your troubles myself? But this time it's not Yirmiyahu asking about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, it's Moshe asking. Knowing that despite his establishing a system of judges and courts, that justice is a difficult thing to uphold absolutely and indefinitely, and it will eventually falter. Rashi points out that the verse reads, I cannot carry you, and not what it might be more fitting, I cannot judge you, which is to imply the weight and burden involved in judging another person fairly. The sin of the spies stem from their harsh judgment of the land. They sow seeds of doubt and disunity by using judgment, gavura, without balancing it with the proper amount of mercy, chesed, which is required to create harmony, tiferet. Throughout the Torah, we see the various permutations of Hashem's name and the power that each contains within it. The one name that we do not speak out loud, also known as the Havaya or the Tetragrammaton, is Kulo Chesed, full of kindness. Others include Elohim, Adni, and Ehyeh. Elohim signifies Hashem's attribute of judgment and severity, while the name Adni signifies his attribute of authority and dominion, Adon meaning master or ruler, and Adonai means my master. These two names signify two types of courts. Elohim is that of strict judgment and is associated with the sphere of Gevurah, and Adni correlates with lenient judgment associated with the sphere of Malchut. When these two divine attributes are combined, it can produce anger, so the rectification of anger involves tracing these attributes in the soul, ridding them of the shell of anger in order to reveal the goodness of the soul. In other words, being judgmental, meaning acting like a court, is the source of anger. 
And the lesson of Azamra, which is at the core of Breslov teaching, is to rectify harsh judgment by finding the good point in yourself and others and judging it favorably, bringing merit to yourself and others. The name Ehiyeh is the mediator between Havaya on the one hand and Elohim and Ani on the other. That's why Hashem commands Moshe to tell the children of Israel that he's been sent by Ehiyeh, the God that balances strength and kindness, judgment and mercy. Rabbi Nachman explains that the secret of personal redemption is to combine chesed and gevura in order to attain dad, ultimate knowledge, wisdom. Loving kindness or judgment by itself is incomplete. Balance, knowing when to use each trait, is the key. Tempering one over the other and the ability to know when to use each characteristic is the essence of dad, wisdom. The Talmud says a person should always draw people close by means of his right hand and push them aside with the left hand. As King David says in Tehillim, the world was built with chesed. Chazal, our sages, teach that the light that was created on the first day shone from one end of creation to the other. And in Kabbalah, we learn that the light of chesed is contained throughout all of creation. As it says in the beginning, an infinite, uncompounded light filled all of creation. The sphere of Gevura represents restrictive power, limiting and concealing the infinite light so that all creation receives in accordance with its capacity. Therefore, a balance of chesed and gevura must exist for bearable good to exist in the world. This is manifested in the sphere of teferet, which represents the harmonization of giving and restraint, so that a bearable amount of beauty and revelation can be seen in the olam, the world, that is ne'elam, hidden. To illustrate this a bit, we pray for rain because water is essential to life. But rain must be given with restraint because too much water would drown creation. All good must be given with restraint. The word tiferet is derived from the Hebrew word pe'er, meaning beauty. The more good and unification with the divine source one can attain, the more hidden beauty from this world of concealment becomes revealed. As we see in the Parsha, Moshe is speaking to the new generation. He tempers judgment of their fathers and the fear that he wishes to instill in them so as to not sin, but always connected to the divine. So as to not sin, but to always connect with the divine. He tempers judgment of their fathers and the fear that he wishes to instill in them so as to not sin, but to always connect with the divine. Instead of speaking harshly or about the sin itself, Instead of speaking harshly or about the sin itself, he merely hints at it by mentioning the place where the sin has been committed. Hinting of a mistake is all that is needed if the person already regrets having made the mistake, as it acts as a reminder to the person as chizuk, inspiration to stay strong and align with the good. This is why Moshe waited until right before his death, until he had already given them the land, so that they could see that his intentions were pure and solely for their own well-being, thereby accepting it with love. Knowing how much kavura to bring into any situation is always a matter of how pure one's intentions are and how open the people are to hearing the reproof. That's why in the case of the previous generation who took part in the sin of the spies and the sin of the golden calf, Moshe didn't simply hint at what they had done wrong, since he knew it wouldn't have sufficed. In those instances where they lacked a Muna and Hashem, sending in the spies, creating molten images as an intermediary to be closer to Hashem, Moshe knew he had to speak harshly and at length in order to awaken them to true alignment and strengthen their faith to push away their fear. The generation that left Egypt and wandered through the desert are referred to as Dor Hamidbar. They were a generation of knowledge which paralleled Moshe who perceived godliness. The generation that entered into Eretz Yisrael, however, were not on the same level of perceiving godliness because they were involved in mundane reality. Dor Hamidbar saw at Mount Sinai, whereas the new generation only heard as it's written, now Israel listen. As they say, seeing is believing, because when one sees something with their own eyes, their doubts dissipate. Whereas when you hear something, you might believe in that moment, but when the moment's passed and anyone questions you about the experience, oftentimes the belief dissipates, or sometimes even altogether. 
The Rebbe explains that when Devarim, the repetition of the Torah, also called Mishnah Torah, was given to the generation, it was important to emphasize concepts such as Misirat Nefesh, willingness to self-sacrifice, whereas that wasn't required for the previous generation. And it may seem that the generation to enter the land of Israel was on a lower level and that the descent would breed hopelessness. The previous generation were told, for you have not yet come to the resting place and heritage, referring to Shiloh and Yerushalayim. It would only be the generation that entered the promised land that would inherit this resting place and heritage. It was the descent to the worldly that ushers in the revelation of the celestial. And so much like in our own lives, the temporal descent affects the ultimate ascent. This is hinted in our reading Devarim every year during the nine days, the Shabbat preceding Tisha B'av, the date of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. But as Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev saw it, from the descent from the first and second Beit HaMikdash, we have Shabbat Chazon, the vision of the third and final Beit HaMikdash, which transcends the previous two and brings the full revelation, ushering in the final redemption. Rabbi Nachman teaches that in order to experience a taste of Or HaGanuz, the hidden light, one must elevate the aspect of fear to its source. Fear is elevated with the aspect of judgment, as it's written in Proverbs, through judgment the king will establish the land. The land corresponds to fear, as it's said in Tehillim, the earth feared, and later he conducted his affairs with judgment. One must judge and evaluate all their actions so that they can be elevated on high. In this world, we see that when judgment is enacted, others respect the righteous and the law and fear it, inspired by their own desire to not fall victim to similar judgment. Jumping earlier into Hillam and further into the lesson of the Zarma, it says, And yet, in a little bit, the sinner is gone. You will contemplate his place, but he will not be there. This correlates to the famous lesson in Pirkei Avot. Find yourself a teacher, acquire for yourself a friend, and judge every person favorably. This practice of rectifying judgment is done by finding the good point in yourself. When you do that, you take away the bad from yourself and others, and when that becomes second nature, you can reach a level where you don't see bad. This is what it means when it says in Tehillim that the sinner is gone, as you have brought yourself and the other to a place of kulotov, all good. Judgment isn't intrinsically negative as it's needed in order to discern between good and bad decisions, but we have to find the sweet harmony, the tiferet, so that judgment and fear don't create bad, but only reveal good. Only when judgment takes over a person does it become a negative force, eventually resulting in anger and violence. That's why we meditate on Hashem's names and use our speech to moderate and mitigate judgment with mercy, with chesed. Suspending judgment in as many situations as possible is key. Often opposing views will bring about harsh judgments. But as Rab Natan teaches in Likutei Alachot, all viewpoints derive from the will of wills. Although it's impossible to understand this rationally, if everyone tried to look at others from this perspective, then strife would cease. Conflict manifests when we fail to bind our will to the will of wills because it is within that will where harmony and peace prevail, since all is incorporated into the oneness of the light of the infinite. As it's written, it is the nature of he who is good to do good. Balancing judgment with mercy, finding the sweet spot of harmony in ourselves and others is the way that we could tap into the ultimate good, the hidden light, and bring that light bit by bit into this world of concealment, being a force of revelation, ushering in the final redemption. Amen. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.